chapter 3 to John chapter 3. Again, if you're visiting with us, my name is Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed. I'm excited to be back with you. I know my family was out for a couple weeks, which is always weird. It's strange enough for me to miss one Sunday, but I'm real out of sorts when we miss two. Uh, But I'm excited to be back with you. We're continuing on in our series through the book of John that you may believe is what we've titled the series. And this morning we're going to look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. And I want to read through verse 36. I know you just sat down. I want to invite you to stand if you're able out of reverence for God's word. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. I'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 36. Hear, Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, And who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This morning, I want us to consider this idea, the supremacy of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this privilege to gather in this place and to worship you. I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The supremacy of Jesus. So some of you might know this about me. It actually came up in a conversation this morning. I'm a person that I've always loved music. Uh, Not just in terms of listening to music. I listen to a lot of music and pay all the ridiculous fees for streaming services. But also in terms of playing music. So fun fact about me, right? Get to know your pastor. Uh, I can play quite a few instruments from saxophone to oboe to clarinet and to most things with strings. So guitar, bass, all of that. I've, I've also really enjoyed playing. I began playing music at a really young age. Uh, I did what most kids do, right? Started with the recorder. Y'all remember the recorder? Started with that. I, man, I was, I was a boss on the recorder. 
And then, and then I was like, you know what, let me move into band. So I joined band in elementary school. And I remember in, in band in elementary school learning the basics of music. I remember learning not only how to play my instrument, but how to play my instrument with other people. Now there's one lesson kind of early on in my musical career that always stuck with me. So when you're in elementary school, some of you might know this, you're pretty much just all playing the same part. It's just everybody's playing the melody because even with that, you're somehow going to get 15 different parts because no one knows what they're doing. But they just kind of give you the melody. But as you advance in music a little bit, you come to realize that these complex scores of music actually have multiple parts to them, right? Where the same instrument can be playing four or five different parts. And so as I was advancing in music, it became more technical. And as we were moving to these more complex pieces of music, we had a lot that we needed to learn. But at the start of one of the school years in particular, we were given a piece of music with multiple parts. And the first thing that our conductor did was she said, play it. And then she just sat down. Now we were all a little confused because we might not be Mozart. We weren't experts at the craft, but we knew enough to know it didn't work that way. We needed to have agreement on tempo. We needed someone to lead us and to conduct us. But our teacher simply said, instruments up, ready, play. And she sat down. As you can imagine, it was not a Mozart symphony. It was pretty terrible. People were playing at different tempos. They started at different times. No one quite knew who to follow. So most of us made it about a measure or two, like eight beats, and we just kind of all quit playing. There was a lot of laughter and chuckles because we knew it was really bad. But I'll never forget what the teacher said. She took her spot back on the podium and she said, I wanted you to do that because I need you to understand something here at the beginning of the school year. I need you to understand that you cannot take the notes on the page and turn them into something beautiful on your own. You are a part of something bigger, so you need someone to follow. And then she said this, you play your part and let me lead, and I promise we can take those individual notes on the page and make something beautiful. The whole purpose of that was to remind us of the part that we are to play, but also to recognize the role that we are not responsible to fill. And the reason I tell you that story this morning is because in a very real sense, that's the same lesson that John is trying to get you to see in our text this morning. Not, not in relation to making music, but rather in regards to our spiritual lives, that you and I have been tasked with a part to play, but there is also a role that we were never meant to fill. And similar to the lesson I learned in music class years ago, we need someone to lead us, and we are not sufficient to fill the role on our own. But what John wants us to see, the whole purpose of these verses, is that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is Lord. And so what I want to contend for you this morning is that when we understand our part in the story, we can make something beautiful. So last week, Pastor Lance uh, walked us through Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. The conversation that began with Nicodemus wanting to understand how it was that Jesus was doing the things that he was doing. And Jesus, in turn, shares with Nicodemus the more pressing concern. Not how he can do all of this, but why he's doing what he's doing. Because Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom on earth. Jesus goes on to explain how it is that a person can be admitted into the kingdom of God. 
and admittance in the kingdom of God centers around one idea, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God from heaven sent to earth to redeem humanity. Jesus is making the claim before Nicodemus that Jesus is Lord, that he's above all. Even as Jesus says in verse 13, which you looked at last week, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. But what we see in our text this morning is the same idea fleshed out a little bit further. Here's what I want you to see. If Nicodemus shows us how to get into the kingdom of God, then John the Baptist in our text shows us the faithful way to live once you're in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. If Nicodemus shows us the way we get into the kingdom of God, John the Baptist shows us the way to faithfully live once we're in the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to show you this morning. So let me set the scene a little bit. Beginning there in verse 22, we read, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So Jesus, right, he's in the Judean countryside. John's also out baptizing. They're at two different locations, though. So Jesus baptizing over here. John's baptizing over here. Now, it is worth mentioning that here in the text, the author, John, says that it's Jesus baptizing, but he will clarify in the next chapter, the very beginning of chapter 4, that it's not actually Jesus who's doing the baptizing, but it's his disciples. That's John 4, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, here it is, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So it's actually Jesus' disciples who are baptizing. So Jesus over here, John over here. Now it's also worth mentioning, just giving you some context, that line the author throws it there in there in verse 24. Since John had not yet been thrown into prison. You might not think much of that, but that's actually a very significant line. Because the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus' ministry starting around the time John the Baptist is in prison. But what the author John is letting us know that Jesus' ministry actually began before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. So there's stuff going on in the life of Jesus before Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick up the story of Jesus. So they're out baptizing. Crowds of people are coming to be baptized, some to John, some to Jesus. But then a dispute breaks out. That's verse 25. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification or ceremonial washing. Now here's the thing. We don't have details about what this specific dispute was over. The author John feels no need to let us into what the dispute was over, but you get a sense that it had something to do with a contrast between what Jesus was doing and what John was doing. Well, why do we say that? Because of the response of John's disciples there in verse 26. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, the one who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So we don't know exactly what the dispute was about, but we know it prompted John's disciples to go to John and say, hey, this Jesus guy, like we got to do something about it. So in a sense, John the Baptist's disciples are trying to protect John's ministry and they say, hey, you got to do something about this, right? You're losing Twitter followers. Your conference registrations are down. Your church is losing members to the church down the street. We're trying to fight for you here, John. You got to do something. 
They were trying to protect John's reputation. They feared that Jesus was stealing his thunder. One commentator explains it like this. He says, the disciples of John the Baptist were obviously concerned to protect the popularity and the prestige of their teacher. And they wanted the baptizer to counter Jesus' growing popularity by taking some action on his own behalf. But it's in the response of John over the remaining few verses that we learn some lessons about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God recognizing the supremacy of Jesus. So I got three lessons for you this morning, and then I'm done. Here's the first lesson. The supremacy of Jesus will change your perspective. The supremacy of Jesus will change your perspective. Again, go back to verse 27. So after they come to John, it says, John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Let me say that again. No one can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of, of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. So in response to John the Baptist's disciples trying to convince him to fight for his territory, John responds and basically says, listen, if Jesus is Lord, there isn't anything that I have that doesn't already belong to him. That's verse 27. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So in essence, John is saying, my time, my efforts, my resources, my abilities, my ministry, the very breath in my lungs, it already belongs to Jesus. He's saying, you're trying to get me to fight for something that doesn't belong to me in the first place. You want me to lay claim to something as my own that ultimately belongs to Jesus, church. And I need you to understand this morning that the same is true for us. Right? Your time, your efforts, your resources, your abilities, your family, your friends, your job, your ministry, the very breath in your lungs, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. And, and hear me, until our perspective shifts to the point that we understand that no one can receive anything unless it has been given to them from heaven, we will be tempted to try to carve out our own little kingdom in a kingdom that already belongs to a better king. But I need, you, I need you to understand this. Recognizing the supremacy of Jesus is not settling for less than. Hey, we're going to have our honest talk, right? I think if we're honest, sometimes we submit to the supremacy of Jesus begrudgingly. Because we recognize the undeniable theological truth that everything belongs to him. While simultaneously believing we could do it better. I could use my time better than Jesus can use my time. I can use my money better than Jesus can use my money. I can use my gifts better than Jesus can use my gifts. But that's not where John is. In some way, right, John the Baptist epitomizes Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Like John, John epitomizes a transformed way of thinking. You see, John's disciples are thinking like the world. 
We have to cultivate our kingdom. We have to protect what's ours. We have to secure our futures. John, right, we're counting on you and this ministry thing to work because we got bills to pay. And in a very real sense, we see that exact same thing today, don't we? Maybe you don't see it. I see it. Right? Like there's a, a movement right now. I'm not going to dive deep into it because it's stupid. And I don't want to open that can of worms. But we're seeing this Christian nationalist movement. Right? That, man, we've got we to get in government. And we've got to make the government Christian and the laws Christian. We've got to punish people for not following the Bible. Listen, I want people to follow the Bible. I do. I want people to trust in Jesus. But I also can clearly see that that's using the world's ways to try to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And it doesn't work that way. John reveals a transformed mindset where he's ultimately saying, this isn't about me, this is about Jesus. And one of the ways that we can evaluate whether or not we're being transformed is honestly by evaluating how we view our stuff, our gifts, our talents, our treasures. Are we thinking about them and utilizing them the same way that the world does? So John here reminds his disciples, he says, hey, everything I have is from Jesus and I am not the Messiah. But then he gives this beautiful picture to explain it. He says in verse 29 that he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. Now this is a cultural picture that might be somewhat awkward for us to understand. So John the Baptist is using a cultural practice in the ancient Near East to describe the joy that he finds in the Lord. He uses a traditional Jewish marriage custom. So one commentator is very helpful in explaining this. And, it, and this is what this commentator wrote. He said, at that time, the groom normally selected one or two close friends to escort the bride. So it'd be like our best man, right? To escort the bride to the bridegroom's marriage chamber and wait outside the room or the tent for the bridegroom's shout and often for receipt of tokens that the marriage had been consummated with his virgin bride. Such friends of the bridegroom were thus able to certify to the wedding guests that the consummation of the marriage had taken place and the joyous festivities could continue. So that was kind of the practice in the day, right? The, the best man would escort the bride to the groom in their wedding room. They would consummate the marriage. I mean, it's a little strange to me, right? Like the best man standing outside and he's listening for the shout. He's like, all right. And he gets to go back and tell them, we can keep celebrating. And keep celebrating. There are like three jokes that I'm not making because the Spirit's at work right now. And so what John is saying though is he's saying, listen, I'm not the groom and the bride doesn't belong to me, but I'm privileged to be the friend that stands outside and gets to celebrate as this marriage is consummated. I get to celebrate as this kingdom is inaugurated. John is saying, I find joy in the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. I find joy in the bride of Christ that he is cultivating. And he says this, my joy is tied to his success. Now, I don't want to downplay the significance of this. I can't, I can't go as deep as I wanted, want to, but that is a true mark of spiritual maturity. That John is not threatened by the success of Jesus' ministry. 
but actually finds joy in it. That in and of itself is a neat reminder for me, and maybe it is for you, because I can be tempted, maybe you can be tempted to see other people's success as a threat to you, rather than a joy to be celebrated. But right, if it logically fits, if I understand that everything ultimately belongs to Jesus, then not only the things that have been entrusted to me belong to Jesus, but the things that have been entrusted to you belong to Jesus. And so if God is using you in a particular way to reveal his kingdom, that's not ultimately a threat to me. It should be my joy too, because it's for my good. So here's what I'm trying to get you to see. At every turn, John seems to be modeling this truth that the supremacy of Jesus just changes the way a person views the world. It changes your perspective. But that's not the only thing. You see, I said a few moments ago that recognizing the supremacy of Jesus is not settling for less. And what we see next with John the Baptist is that as he acknowledges that everything ultimately belongs to Jesus... He does not find this truth to be a burden, but a relief. So let me explain it in the second lesson here. Here it is. The supremacy of Jesus changes your posture. Look at that line that so many of us know in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Again, John the Baptist isn't saying, that he must decrease as if it's a burden that has to be done. I mean, think about it. It comes on the heels of him just talking about the joy he experiences as Jesus claims his bride. It's in the midst of this joy and satisfaction that John makes the statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John makes this statement not as a burden to bear, but as a blessing to be lived in. Not as a burden to bear, but as a blessing to be lived in. He understands that it's better for Jesus to increase, and it is better for him to decrease. You see, in the book of John, I don't know if you've caught on to this or not, John the Baptist is an interesting character. Like one commentator helped paint the picture when he says that, that John's not only a historical figure, he is a historical figure in the book of John, but he's also used as a symbol to be contrasted with Jesus. Here's what I mean. In John 1, verses 7 through 8, John the Baptist is the witness, but Jesus is the testimony. In John 1, 14 and 23, John is the voice, but Jesus is the word. In John 1, 33, John baptizes with water, but Jesus with spirit. And in John 3, John is the friend, but Jesus is the bridegroom. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the very presence of John the Baptist in the gospel of John is meant to serve as an ever-present testimony that Jesus is better. He's just better. But what I find so interesting, right, is that the author of John doesn't try to contrast Jesus with the worst of them, which is what we would probably do, right? Like, let me take this really bad person, and then let me show you how really good Jesus is. No, that's not what John, the author, does. He chooses to contrast Jesus with the best of them. Because even Jesus recognizes the uniqueness of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven 11, when he says, truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, no one greater than John the Baptist has ever appeared. That's Jesus' words about John. And there's a purpose to this. The author, John, wants you to see that you can take the best the world has to offer and compare it to Jesus, and it will always fall short. It will always fall short. And John the Baptist himself knows this. So he declares it is better that Jesus increases and that I decrease. Because if Jesus is better, why would I not want more of him and less of me? I mean, this is a statement of relief 
for John the Baptist. It was freeing for me to read that, right? I think I've often read that of like, ah, he must increase and I got to decrease. Like John's fighting for this, but it's like, no, this is a statement of relief. He gets to increase and I get to decrease. Praise God. This is a declaration of faith, but it's also a freeing statement. Because what John knows is that if Jesus increases, then John doesn't have to fight to cultivate his own kingdom anymore. If Jesus increases, he doesn't have to worry about providing for himself anymore. If Jesus increases, his hope no longer depends on himself. And John the Baptist knows that there is freedom in decreasing and allowing Jesus to increase. I mean, just think about it, church. If Jesus is the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, his supremacy is a promise that he will always provide for you. If Jesus is the God who is the sacrificial lamb, then his supremacy is a promise of your salvation. If Jesus is the God who is the perfect mediator between God and man, then his supremacy is a promise of your ability to access the throne room of God with boldness. And the question that I have for you this morning is, do you believe that to be true? That the supremacy of Jesus is better? That you don't have to fight to make a name for yourself because with Jesus you have a better name. That you don't have to fight to make yourself right with God because with Jesus your debt is paid in full. You don't have to fight to secure your future because your future is already secure in Christ. Here's what I mean when I say that the supremacy of Jesus changes your posture. Our world lives with a posture of standing. That's its posture. The world's posture is standing because it always has to be ready to fight for what it wants. The world's posture is standing because it always has to be ready to defend itself. The world's posture is standing because it always wants to tower above everyone else. But John's posture is one of kneeling in worship and reverence to our God who is supreme. He's not the only one who's understood this. I mean, just look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 14. He says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And then he goes on and he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established, established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height, the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Here it is. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why do we kneel? Why do we want Jesus to increase and for us to decrease? Because he, not us, he is able to do above and beyond all that we think or ask according to the power that works in us. When we see Jesus as supreme, we are free to have a posture of worship because we believe that Jesus is sufficient 
to meet our needs. We believe that he is sufficient to meet our needs. But there's one more lesson I have for you, and then I'm in my seat. Not only does the supremacy of Jesus change your perspective and your posture, but the supremacy of Jesus changes your purpose. It changes your purpose. Actually, look back with me at verse 28. We read it a little while ago, and then I'll jump down to 31 through 36. But in verse 28, he says, You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. Now, verses 31 through 36, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. So here, John the Baptist is actually kind of reiterating the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in verse 11. He says, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. That goes back to John 1, that he was in the world, but the people didn't receive him. It says, the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one who God sent speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. So he's, he's elevating Jesus by saying Jesus has the spirit on him without measure. Nobody's ever had the spirit without measure. The prophets had a weighted amount of the spirit. They had enough spirit to write the prophetic books they were called to write. But they didn't have unlimited access to the Spirit. But here's Jesus, and, he, and God has given him the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So, so here's what I want you to see. There's a lot of theology there we could flesh out. And, and I'm making a tactical decision, and I hope it doesn't bite me later on when we go further into the book of John but we'll just go back if we need to. I'm not going to deal with the theology. I'm not necessarily going to be dealing with what John the Baptist is saying here. I want you to see why he's saying it. Why he's saying it. Because in verse 28, John restates that he understands his purpose. He is one who is sent ahead of Jesus. He was not the Messiah. John says, I was a sent one. So on a practical level, his statement in verse 30 is literal as well as spiritual. He must increase, I must decrease. Because Jesus was here, John understood that his ministry was coming to an end. He was to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus has now showed up. John recognizes in that statement both a spiritual truth but also a literal truth for him that his ministry is coming to an end. But he knew the reason that he was on earth. John declares, I understand that I was sent to proclaim that Jesus was coming. That was my purpose. John's purpose was shaped by the supremacy of Christ. But John didn't just talk about his, pers- his purpose. He lived it out. That's what we're actually seeing in verses 31 and through 36. What John is doing in these verses is he's doing the very thing he was sent to do. He's introducing people to Jesus. In these verses, he is once again introducing his own disciples to Jesus because they failed to grasp who he was. And John understands his purpose. And so he takes his own disciples and reminds them of the supremacy of Jesus. He is calling them to see Jesus as supreme. John is literally evangelizing his own disciples. Why? Because that was his purpose. And John was going to tell people about Jesus no matter who they were. You know, John the Baptist gets a weird rap sometimes. You know, Matthew tells us, like Matthew throws all kinds of shade on John the Baptist. 
tells us, man, this dude's running around in camel skins, and he's eating bugs and honey. That's a weird dude. That's a great story for new breed kids, right? You can make great pictures with the camel skin and the bugs and the locusts. But it's not just a random fact that Matthew wants to throw in there. It speaks to how seriously John the Baptist took his calling. He was so focused on preparing the way for Jesus that he didn't concern himself with the material things of this world. He was so focused on preparing the way for Jesus that he didn't concern himself with the meals of plenty and luxury. He was committed to the purpose that God had set before him. Here's why I point all of this out. I love you, so I pray that you'll hear my heart in this. My fear for many of us, if I'm honest, my fear for us as a church is that we will let the supremacy of Jesus change our worship We will let the supremacy of Jesus change our hope. We will let the supremacy of Jesus change our joy. We will even let the supremacy of Jesus change our morality. But we won't let the supremacy of Jesus change our purpose. Because you and I have a purpose as well. It's revealed five times in five different books of the Bible, but here's the way that most of you know it. Go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. Here's the thing. We believe Jesus is coming back, amen? That was, that was the easiest one you've had all day. We believe he's coming back. And when he comes back, that's what he's gonna ask about. Hey, I told you like five times this is what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples. How'd you do? How'd you do? Jesus isn't going to ask you if you got the promotion at your job. He's not. Jesus isn't going to ask you if you got married. He's not going to ask you that. Jesus isn't going to ask you if you were the smartest, if you got the theology degrees, if you graduated high school. He's not going to ask you any of that. He's going to say, hey, did you make disciples? Did you make disciples? And I think we have to reckon with the fact, church, that we might have let Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, shape a bunch of things in our life. But if we've not let it shape our purpose, we've missed the mark. And this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. I'm not trying to throw it on you, but but I would fail as a shepherd if I didn't warn you of what I genuinely believe Jesus is going to ask about when he comes back. Did you make disciples? Right? John was about the business of making disciples. It was what his ministry was all about. And John might have been the best of us, but he's also meant to serve as an example for us. That we too are called to make much of Jesus. Because here's the thing that I need you to know. Jesus' supremacy exists whether you recognize it or not. Because his supremacy has never depended on your recognition. It was given to him by God the Father. Because it was Jesus Christ who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And for this reason, not because you recognized him, not because you acknowledged him, but because he came and he humbled himself and he died in the place of sinners. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is supreme whether you recognize it or not. 
Which is why, as John ends his, his conversation with his disciples, he said, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him because Jesus is supreme in your recognition and Jesus is supreme when you ignore him. But I want to leave you with this. The passage doesn't just tell us about his supremacy there in Philippians 2, which is what I just read to you. It not only shows us his supremacy, but it also shows us the love of the one who is supreme. Because that's the gospel we believe, right? That our sin has separated us from God. There's no way for us to make ourselves right with God. Every one of us deserves wrath and judgment for all of eternity. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live the life that we should have lived and then to die the death that we deserve to die. And in that death and resurrection, his supremacy is established, but even more, his love is shown. And what I want you to see is that recognizing the supremacy of Jesus, living under the supremacy of Jesus is not losing anything. It's gaining everything. Because our name is secure, our hope is secure, our, e our eternal state is secure. We are entrusting ourselves to a God who has proven his faithfulness and his love towards us. And so what John wants us to see, the reason that he is speaking is because the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Why is John speaking? So that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he is worthy of our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give us grace to not only recognize the supremacy of Jesus, but allow his supremacy to shape how we live our lives. But God, we also praise you that because Jesus' supremacy is established in his death and resurrection, that our hope isn't dependent on how well we submit to the supremacy of Jesus. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the grave, and that anyone who places their faith in him can be saved. And we pray that that would motivate us to follow him all the more. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.